is a pretty jarring intro, isn't it? This <laughs> is hell. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is Hell, your daily, completely listener-supported source of agita. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? Uh, something happens. I'm not sure if you're aware about this on the stream, uh, where the sample rate of the show randomly switches at some point in the first like three, four minutes of the show, and you sound slowed down like a 45 on a 33 or the other way around. So if you see me uh, putting, I'm also listening to the show on a 30 second delay on my headphones to make sure I know when that happens, so I can uh, refresh the computer. It's, uh, it's a stupid situation. What the hell is that going to be fixed by the board? Uh, I think it might be fixed by getting a better laptop. Oh, all right. Well, I'm working on it. Okay. Uh, uh, also, if you're listening at home, just uh, record the show the way it is, and then speed it up, and then it'll, it'll be normal. <laughs> uh, I got a message right before the show, Alex, got to ask you about this. Uh, I haven't seen, uh, this person who contacted me I haven't seen for decades and decades. And uh, I asked, you know, how are you doing? Have you seen a mutual friend of ours? And they replied, we talked during the 2016 election, but we were on such different sides, we haven't talked since. Now, I don't know who was on what side or how to reply to that. Like, so which one of you supported Trump? Or was this a Jill Stein versus uh, Hillary Clinton thing? Or was this a Bernie Hillary thing? I have no idea, no clue as to what side these two are on. I have no idea of how to approach asking that question. What do you think I should do? Uh, cut both of them out to be sure you don't get the wrong one. Oh, that's a good point. I haven't seen them for decades anyway. Who cares? Today, the Democratic Party is... Is not democratic. That's going to be the same tomorrow, too. That is its process to nominate their candidate to run for the office of the president of the United States in no way reflects democracy. Many Democrats and Hillary supporters insist she did not lose the election in November 2016 because she got the most votes. But that's not how we select the president of the United States in our very undemocratic elections. Instead, the Electoral College, not voters, pick the next president. If Democrats did not like that kind of system, then they would be prioritizing the elimination of the Electoral College. Yet, after every time the Democrats lose due to the college, they claim they won because they got the most votes in the general election. Incredibly, the Democrats then do an about-face, dismissing the will of the voter, and employ a system similar to the Electoral College to select their nominee for president. So, if Hillary won the presidency because she got the most votes, then if Bernie Sanders gets the most votes in the primaries, he should get the nomination, right? Guess again. Vote, voters and votes do not determine which Democrats will represent the party in the presidential election. Delegates and those superdelegates, elites we worried about four years ago, those people, that's who does. You remember the superdelegate elites, the big money insiders Hillary said had guaranteed her nomination despite the fact that she had not yet received enough delegates to ensure her victory. The campaign was still very much on, but Hillary wanted the race over far before the finish line, which led to attacks by Hillary's supporters on Bernie voters to get on board, despite Bernie still having a slim, very slim chance of getting more delegates in the primaries than Hillary. And it also led to Bernie supporters believing the Democratic process had been taken out from under them, that any chance at real change would be forever out of their reach. And here we are again, four years later. The superdelegates' powered, uh, power has been slightly weakened since then, but they still very, very much could pick who runs against Donald Trump. We'll go deep into what might happen if the Democratic National Convention in Milwaukee this July is contested when we speak with writer-at-large and roving correspondent for the outline, Shuja Haider, who, following last week's Democratic presidential candidate debate, posted the article, The World's Biggest Threat to Democracy is the Democratic Party. We'll also be talking to uh, Shuja about another article he wrote right after the Iowa caucus, which was, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they didn't rig the Iowa caucus. You can find The Outline, where both these articles appeared, at theoutline.com, and you can find out more about Shuja, Shuja at his website, shujaxhider.com. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, how are you meddling in the U.S. elections? How are you meddling in the U.S. elections? <laughs> 
you can, by doing this show every day at 10 a.m., you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message your answer to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell trucker cap. Alex is wearing one right now. He wears one every day when doing the show. And you can... Wear one while listening to the show by having our favorite answer to this week's question from hell or cutting out the middleman and going to thisishell.com. Click on support and check out all of our merchandise, including T-shirts, tote bags, coffee mugs, trucker caps, our flash drive, the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century, including 25 interviews we've done over the past 20 years. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest again, this week's question from hell is, how are you meddling in the U.S. elections? How are you meddling in the U.S. elections? Leave your answer at our Facebook page or direct message it to us or email it to us. This is not the media. This is hell. We got an email this week at chuck at thisishell.com from Kit, who writes... Hi, Chuck and Alex. Today I was lucky to stumble upon Matthew Eagleton Price giving a talk entitled The Political Economy of Managerialism from the factory floor to the university. It was presented as a teach-out organized as part of the currently ongoing university and college union strike at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. All right. I think many of the areas he spoke about, primarily how managerialism has come to shape the practice of organizing people's activities, even outside the business domain, would be a good fit for the show. If the topic of managerialism doesn't yield enough content, he's also the author of the 2016 book, Neoliberalism, The Key Concepts. His website is eagletonpierce.com, so check it out there. All the best, Kit. So I did a very little amount of research this morning and discovered that apparently the British government ended subsidies for specialist land language institutions, which mean that schools like the SOAS, as it's known, the School of Oriental and Asian Studies at the University of London, is now mostly dependent on tuition fees. This means either tuition will rise dramatically, programs will be cut, or the university will figure out how to turn a profit, none of which the students want. And I know there's got to be a lot more to it than just that. So I emailed Kit to find out more about the strike, and when we hear back, we'll tell you what the hell is going on at the SOAS. All that said, thank Thanks for the guest suggestion kit, although writing questions for an interview on the political economy of managerialism uh, sounds difficult. It also sounds like something I can learn a lot from. So sure, we'll see if we can get Matthew Eagleton Price on the show. Adam also sent a guest suggestion writing, hey, Chuck, I haven't made a guest suggestion in a long time. And the guy I suggested, historian James R. Green, is now dead. Not blaming you or anything. Just saying. Anyway, I thought an interesting interview for This Is Hell would be YouTube amateur botanist Joey Santori, whose channel Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't, oftentimes discusses the effects of climate change and how globalization has given rise to invasive species of flora, pushing out indigenous species, and creating monocultures. Hearing it related in his thick Southsider accent makes it a bit more palatable, even if it does portend some pretty scary stuff. He'd re he's recently uh, made an appearance on WTTW, the PBS station here in Chicago, in a bit of a local color piece, but it didn't do a hell of a lot of to address the things he sees. The man has a solid grasp of how plants are the mile markers of a changing world, and if I know this is how listeners, judging by letters read on air, comments on Facebook, etc., I think they'd love listening to the two of you in conversation. Here's a link to his channel, and uh, like this is how it's also Patreon-driven. Just look for Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't on YouTube and Patreon. Enjoy. Thanks for reading. Adam. Adam, uh, as Alex is an amateur gardener himself, he'll check out Joey Santori's Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't YouTube channel, and he'll re report back to us on that. We're going to go to, I got some more emails I want to get to from our listeners and a couple of messages that are really, really great. Uh, but we'll get back to those in just a moment. Coming up, the Democratic Party does not nominate its candidates for the president of the United States in a way that could be called democratic. Alex will have some more, some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, how are you meddling in the U.S. elections? How are you meddling in the U.S. election elections? The person with our favorite answer this week gets a this is hell trucker cap which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support 
Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. The Democratic Party process to determine who will represent them in the presidential election is not democratic. Despite reforms, it's very possible the next Democratic nominee to be president, president of the United States will not be determined by any of the voters who voted in any primary or caucus, the caucus itself being a very undemocratic process. Here to talk with us about the chance of a contested convention and what that says about the Democratic Party, writer-at-large, roving correspondent for the outline, Shuja Hyder, posted the article following last week's Democratic presidential uh, candidate debate at the outline entitled... The world's biggest threat to democracy is the Democratic Party. You can find the outline at theoutline.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Shuja. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me. We're also going to be talking about another article you wrote right uh, after the Iowa caucus, which was entitled Just Because Your Paranoid Doesn't Mean They Did Not Rig the Iowa Caucus. We hope to get to that as well. You can find, uh, you know, Chuja is also at Viewpoint Magazine. You can find viewpointmag.com. And is it really true that John Podoritz, a uh, former Reagan and George H.W. Bush speechwriter, who is also the editor at the right wing publication commentary and a journal or columnist at The New York Post, called you a clownish commie idiot. Is that really true? That is a direct quote. He took a break uh, in between ordering burgers online and uh, had that description of me. <laughs> that is fantastic. How do you know he was ordering burgers online? Oh, he posts about it. That's, that's, uh, that's documented. <laughs> that's hilarious. You write the Democratic debate last Wednesday in Nevada has got to be the rowdiest any group of Democratic politicians has ever gotten outside of a wine cave. I just want to stay on wine cave for a second. <laughs> it's a nice shot at the elitist nature of the political class that dominates the Democrats. So before we even get into what happened last week. All of them are millionaires, some much more than others, except one, and that person is Pete Buttigieg. Does that mean that Pete, does that put him outside the wine cave without the elite's interest at heart? I mean, he's right inside of the wine cave. He's, you know, uh, he's probably out of all of the candidates shown the most uh, uh, capitulation towards catering towards the elites. Uh, and that wine cave uh, fundraiser was was the epitome of that. Um, but, you know, I mean, he's consistently uh, rejected the idea of severing uh, Democratic Party politics from corporate interference. He openly talks about how we need to be inclusive of billionaires. You know, he's he's he wants to take money from anyone who will give it to him uh, while downplaying the uh, effects of that influence on uh, the, the political process. You write the debate last week was mostly punctuated by deepening divisions. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren's righteous rage against former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar's less principled spite for South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg after a typically smug homily from Buttigieg. Bloomberg himself was booed by the crowd more than I have ever witnessed at a political uh, event not involving our current president. Before last Wednesday's debate, I hadn't watched one second of any of the debate yet during no this nomination process. I watched because I wanted to see and hear how much Bloomberg would inevitably fail, and he did not reach the <laughs> heights of my very, very, very low expectations. <laughs> he was way worse than I could have imagined, and I thought he was going to be awful. Can Bloomberg... Let's take that out. Can anyone be really bad at the debates and still win a nomination? Because considering the format, are the debates a good way to determine the nominees for president? And then during the general, the president of the United States, can you lose debates and win elections? And are debates a good exercise in democracy? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think that a lot of us were expecting that the debate would be the first time the American public really got to gauge Bloomberg's persona, uh, which, you know, hadn't really been exposed to the to the other candidates or to public uh, evaluation. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know the statistics on this, but I don't know how much voters uh, pay attention to this stuff the way those of us who are, you know, keeping track of the political process do. I do know that Bloomberg has invested many times the amount of money any other candidate has in advertising. And I think that the majority of voters, I believe there is data on this, uh, react to TV advertising um, much more so than they do the news. And, you know, when, when I see when I watch TV and I, I see Bloomberg ads all the time uh, and, you know, they show him with President Obama, uh, you know, it, edited in a way that it looks like Obama endorsed him. And a lot of people apparently 
you know, anecdotal evidence is that people are believing that Obama has endorsed Bloomberg when he hasn't actually made an endorsement. Uh, so I think, you know, money talks. And that's uh, the sad truth of our political process. And do you think debates are a good process for determining who should be the next, nom- the next nominee or the next president of the United States? I mean, they're certainly better than the alternative. Uh, I, I think that the, uh, the, the, what the process should look like if it was democratic is that all the candidates should have to make a, uh, uh, a pitch for themselves in public and then the rank and file membership of the party of uh, voters uh, who will vote in the general election get to decide on a nominee through through primaries. Uh, and, you know, as as we're we're getting to, that's unfortunately not the way it works, not really the way it's ever worked. And let's get to that. You point out that the most telling moment during the debate last Wednesday was when moderator Chuck Todd asked the candidates a procedural question regarding a potential electoral outcome. You then quote Todd, the host of Meet the Press, saying, there's a very good chance none of you are going to have enough delegates to the Democratic National Convention to clinch this nomination. If that happens, I want all of your opinions on this. Should the person with the most delegates at the end of this primary season be the nominee, even if they are short of a majority? Now, first, that's a hypothetical. But when you glance at the history of the Democratic primaries, the candidate who got the most votes or won the most states did not always determine the candidate. But you have to go way back to, you know, United States Secretary of the Treasury, William Gibbs McAdoo, who appears (laughs) to have won a majority of states in 1920 and 1924 and a vast majority of the votes in 24, at least to my cursory reading at Wikipedia. So how likely is it that the Democratic Party would have a contested or brokered convention that is not giving the nominee with the most votes during the primaries and caucuses, the most delegates, the nomination, and instead giving it to another candidate? How likely is that? Well, it it doesn't happen often. I believe the last time it happened was 1952 uh, when um, uh, Adelaide Stevenson was nominated. Uh, Harry Truman had dropped out before the convention, and it came down to, I believe, four candidates. There were three ballots uh, because no one had reached a majority on the first. Now, there's a there's a distinction here. There's technicalities. There's kind of mathematical idiosyncrasies to this process. Uh, for one thing, as we all know, you're voting, or maybe some people don't know, we're voting not directly for the candidate, but for delegates who will go to the convention, and then they will vote on a candidate. So the delegates, uh, the ordinary kind of delegates, are associated with particular candidates and their campaigns. So they're not they're not technically required to vote for that candidate when they get to the convention, but they're going to because they're associated with the campaign. Uh, the issue that happened last time was that there's another set of delegates, which in the Democratic Party are called superdelegates. And uh, those people are not elected. They're not associated with the campaign. Uh, they're made up of DNC officials, Democratic governors, members of Congress, and what the DNC documentation calls distinguished party leaders, which you know could include former presidents, whatever. Uh, Anyway, so those people, they're already going to be at the convention. They're already going to have a vote. They're not associated with anything. They don't have to represent anybody. They're they're strictly there to do what they want. Uh, And in 2016, they were allowed to vote on the first ballot. And, you know, when people talk about that primary election being rigged, it really is true that, you know, Hillary Clinton went into it with hundreds of votes in her favor before any member of the public cast a vote in a primary. Uh, you know, so that's, that's, those are the facts. And it led to some disturbing results. And, you know, if you see the, uh, the Michael Moore movie about Trump's election, there's footage in there. Uh, there's a montage of uh, the DNC convention in uh, Philadelphia that year. And you see over and over again districts where uh, Bernie Sanders won uh, that are being presented as victories for Hillary, Hillary Clinton. Uh, I give the math for the, the outcome in West Virginia in, in the article. Uh, so, you know, th- these types of things have happened. And that's why in 2018, the Democratic Party changed the rules. This, this year, the superdelegates won't be able to vote on the first ballot. So where will they come into play? It's if, if no candidate reaches a majority, which means over 50% of the, delegate, of the pledged delegates votes, They'll do a second ballot in which the superdelegates, and there are 771 of them, there are, I believe, 3,979 pledge delegates. Uh, the superdelegates will take part in the second ballot and will be able to tip the scales. Uh, so let's, I mean, if you think about it, uh, if somebody goes to the convention, let's, I mean, 
it's projected to be Bernie Sanders. If he goes to the convention with 45% of the votes and everybody else has, I don't know, let's say there's four other candidates, they all have 11%, that will not be called a victory for Bernie Sanders. And they will go to a second ballot. And at that point, the superdelegates, the party elites, will be making a decision. And that's really frightening. Obama's 2012 presidential campaign manager, uh, Jim Messina, said it would be suicide if the Democratic Party nominated someone other than the candidate who got the most votes and delegates. He said this on CNN this week. In 20, on, uh, 2020, how would the Democratic Party rank and file? How would those who have or may vote Democratic react? To what extent could nominating a candidate who did not win a majority of the votes and delegates have an impact on the general election in November? Well, I mean, look at the last time that this happened, uh, or at least the last time it happened in, in a significant way, in, in 1968 at the uh, Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Uh, Hubert Humphrey was nominated to be the the, uh, the presidential candidate after having won literally zero primaries or caucuses. He had not won a single primary contest. Uh, they nom- the, the, uh, the party leaders nominated him. Uh, over Eugene McCarthy, the anti-Vietnam War candidate, and the result was riots outside the convention center uh, in Hyde Park. Uh, you know, it's 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 obvious people are going to get mad at this if because you know you can talk about a mathematical technicality, the difference between a plurality, which means the highest number where where when none is more than half, versus a majority, which is more than half, and you can talk about how you want the nominee to be chosen by a majority rather than a plurality. But the question is, what do you do when you don't achieve that result? And what the Democratic Party has decided to do is that they're just going to throw away what the people decided, what the public voted for. It becomes irrelevant. Uh, The delegates can change their minds on a second ballot. The superdelegates can enter and exercise their will. If, If that mathematical result is not achieved, then democracy goes out the window. Let's talk about 1968 for a second. I've seen the Chicago police riot of 1968 framed as an anti-war riot. That's not what it was. It was a police riot, but we'll get to that in a moment. What do we miss in our understanding of the violence in 68 when we don't recognize that violence as a response not to the Vietnam War, but a response to democracy being stolen. Why don't any commentators or any of the news media industry's outlets point out that if this is a contested convention and it becomes a brokered convention and takes the nominee away from the nomination away from the candidate who got the most votes and won the most primaries and the nomination is given to someone else, there very well could be violence in the streets outside the convention because that is exactly what happened the last time in 1968. Why aren't people pointing out that the police riots here in Chicago were due to democracy being stolen? Right. I mean, I mean, for one thing, you got to consider that all of this weird calculus is inherently anti-democratic. It's a barrier to entry for people to try to participate in politics if they don't understand how it works. I mean, that's just that's just fundamental that uh, if people, you know, I, I, I'm trying to avoid doing too much math here. But if you think about it, 771 people have the power of hundreds of thousands of voters. If it goes to the second ballot, those people will account for 50, 15, excuse me, 15 percent of the votes, which, you know, the other 85 percent is all of us versus 771 people. It's insane. Uh, so, I mean, of course people are going to get mad if they see the result of that outcome, which is, we don't care what you said, we don't care what you did, we're going to make the decision now, based on some weird loophole. Uh, I think, you know, people are going to have a right to, uh, show resistance. And of course, in Chicago, what happened was, uh, a, a brutal crackdown by the, the local government against, uh, you know, uh, uh, public assembly. So if the nominating process fails, Democrats go back to the caucus process, essentially, when they get to the delegates. What does this whole way in which the Democratic Party selects candidates reveal to you about the Democratic Party? Because supporting and 
continuing this process goes against the party repeating and rationalizing over and over again that Hillary won in 2016 because she got the most votes. You can't say Hillary right. won because she got the most votes when your own party supports a system that has caucuses and rewards delegates, just like the Electoral College, circumventing the popular vote. So what does this process of nominating say or reveal to you about the Democratic Party? You know, what's really embarrassing is if you compare it to the Republican Party, they also have a uh, delegates who perform a function like the superdelegates. They don't call them superdelegates, but they are allowed to vote however they want. They account for 7% of the vote versus 15 for the Democratic Party. So the Democratic Party has really put themselves in a situation where they're less democratic than the opposition. And that's just embarrassing. You know, uh, the what it what it shows us is that the party itself operates on a kind of oligarchic structure that there are bosses who are going to make the ultimate decision regardless of what uh, the membership wants. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's a really old model of politics that I don't think falls in line with the, the rhetoric of the party and the way that it claims to present itself, especially in opposition to, uh, you know, the uh, increasingly authoritarian Republican Party. The first superdelegates come about in 1984, at right about at the time the party is going full tilt neoliberal. Do you think there's a connection between the two? Is the current convention process with superdelegates a neoliberal election process? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the period in which, you know, obviously Reagan was shifting the whole country right, and then eventually Bill Clinton would chase his tail and bring the, the rest of the Democratic Party along with him. Uh, I think that I mean, you know, the the commission that that came together, the Hunt Commission that came together to uh, institute the superdelegate system, uh, a member of that commission explicitly said uh, that the purpose was to regain control of the nomination process uh, by the party elites. Uh, the fear was that since 1968 and then 1972 with uh, the McGovern candidacy, that the party was shifting further left than the the leadership was comfortable with. Uh, so they wanted to rein it in. They wanted to exercise their authority. And the superdelegates were kind of a failsafe in order to do that. And the problem is that it just it just looks embarrassing. You know, when you have situations like you had at the Democratic National Convention uh, in 2016, where uh, local uh, ordinances are reporting results that don't correspond to the electoral outcomes, in their regions, uh, you know, that that doesn't look right and as it shouldn't to the public. And so they're covering their asses on that. You say they were doing this because the party was shifting to the left. What would you say to somebody who argues they, they weren't doing this to, because the party was shifting to the left? They were doing this because they lost with McGovern in 72. They lost with Carter in 80. So they were just trying to make sure that they had winners at, nominated in the process. Why do you think this is about shifting to the left and not about just picking better candidates? You know, I, I, I think that to some extent it's both. And I think that it's predicated on a belief that among those kinds of party insiders that uh, hewing close to the center is the way to win, uh, which, you know, they can cite instances for like Clinton, which kind of, I think, overlooks the, the fact that voters are, they tend to be non-ideological. Voters tend to respond to uh, a whole array of factors that don't necessarily line up to the way uh, political insiders understand policy. Uh, so I think that those those defeats uh, were less significant than just the idea that the party was escaping from their grasp. And uh, you know, another there's a there there's good uh, documentation of this uh, at in these times. There are some uh, uh, assessments of the of the those commission reports. Uh, you know, the the participants in those uh, commissions over and over again they talk about exercising control. I believe someone talked about eliminating outliers, ideological outliers from uh, from the party. Uh, and I mean, the, the final thing is just that like in 2016 and this year, we're seeing that theory being refuted. I mean, if you look at the results in, in the last uh, caucus, uh, 
Bernie got what? What was it like? Forty-seven percent of the vote, and second place was Biden with I think not even twenty percent. Uh, the theory of whether uh, a really effective left candidate would inevitably lose, I don't think that's really been tested in, in the modern United States in, in our political system. You write how Chuck Todd asked Mike Bloomberg to weigh in first on the question again, right. should the person with the most delegates at the end of this primary season be the nominee, even if they are short of a majority? You quote Bloomberg saying, whatever the rules of the Democratic Party are, they should be followed. And if you have a process, which I believe they do, you add that's when Chuck Todd cut him off asking for a yes or no. It was a no. Bloomberg said that the candidate with the most votes should not be considered the winner of the Democratic Party. Every other candidate agreed. Let's dwell on that for a second, the leading members of the Democratic Party agreed that the result of a democratic process should not be honored. What would you say to someone who argues that the rules are the rules and they should be followed no matter how undemocratic? Well, for one thing, the rules change constantly. I mean, you've seen that like it's barely been the same from one election to another. Uh, I think that the rules should easily, you know, uh, if the rules don't reflect the outcome of, of the the democratic process we have in place, then it's entirely reasonable to contest them. And especially if the only response is, uh, you know, to clamp down and eliminate that result. I mean, Bloomberg, for example, is already, apparently, according to a report in Politico, is already campaigning to uh, for the second ballot. Uh, he's been reaching out to superdelegates. Uh, he's already, like, trying to pressure the other candidates to drop out. What he's trying to do is that if Bernie Sanders gets the leading plurality at uh, the at, on the first ballot, he wants to be the person that the establishment swarms to in the second ballot to defeat Bernie Sanders, which you know was his clearly his goal from the outset of his campaign. With Chuck Todd then turning to Bernie Sanders on the question of whether the person with the most votes in the primary should win the nomination, you quote Sanders saying, well, the process includes 500 superdelegates on the second ballot. So I think that the will of the people should prevail. Yes, the person who has the most votes should become the nominee. You then cite Todd saying to end the question, thank you guys, five no's and a yes. What do you think of the question to begin with? Was it worth asking? And how does summing up the responses as five no's and a yes frame the question? It was certainly worth asking. I think that, you know, you know, you, if you asked any ordinary person on the street, should the person with the most votes be the nominee, they're going to say yes, as they should. Otherwise, you know, you're getting into... A weird uh, realm like uh, Bernie Sanders gave the natural response, the response that corresponds to our supposed ideals of representative democracy. Uh, the rest of the candidates were basically saying, if I lose, you should still nominate me. I mean, fundamentally, that's what they were saying. And, you know, like Pete Buttigieg, for example, has been uh, harping on the point that he technically won more delegates in Iowa, uh, whereas Although Bernie Sanders won the popular vote, the, the news networks all named him the winner. Uh, I think he's also campaigning, like Bloomberg, to be the second ballot nominee. And even, you know, Sanders' closest ally, Elizabeth Warren, uh, or at least she's presented herself that way at times, she's also potentially gunning for that, uh, that you know, uh, nomination on a technicality. We are speaking with writer-at-large and roving correspondent for The Outline, Shuja Haider, who posted the articles, The World's Biggest Threat to Democracy is the Democratic Party, and Just Because You're Paranoid Doesn't Mean They Didn't Rig the Iowa Caucus, both available at theoutline.com. You can follow Shuja on Twitter at ShujaXHaider, and you can find out more about Shuja at ShujaXHaider com. You write this. This was an incredible, remarkable exchange. This uh, exchange between Chuck Todd and all of the candidates over if the person who has the most votes or wins the most primaries should be the nominee. Uh, one that uh, seems specifically targeted towards putting Sanders in his place. You then cite the New York Times reporting it was essentially an admission from Mr. Sanders' rivals that he may finish the primary and caucus calendar with the most pledged delegates, but that they hold, uh, hope to hold him under 50 percent and make their case to delegates in Milwaukee. Must Bernie Sanders 
get 50% or more of the vote and win the majority of primaries in order to win the nomination? Or is that still not going to be enough? Oh, I mean, if if he gets more than 50 percent and there's some way that the, uh, you know, the officials try to block him, that would be, uh, you know, even even worse than predicted. Uh, I don't see a, a, a pretext for that in place at the moment. Uh, although, you know, there there were reports that members of the DNC were trying to get the super delegates in, uh, instituted back into the first ballot uh, of voting. Uh, because they're feeling so threatened by uh, by the the outcomes thus far that put Sanders ahead, uh, and you know I mean the, they're completely open to changing the rules as long as it favors the establishment position. Uh, they changed the rules to allow allow Bloomberg to participate in the debates. You know, uh, these rules are are always flexible when it comes to stopping a threat. And they're, they become much more firm and set in stone when that threat to the establishment seems to gain ground. You make this really amazing point, writing after the debate, even Warren, Sanders' apparent closest ally, emphasized her commitment to the tactic of winning by not having the most votes or the most primary victories going into the convention. You quote MSNBC's Chris Matthews asking Warren for her reasoning. Warren answered, we need to pick a nominee who can beat Donald Trump, and that means we've got to have someone who is talking to all parts of the party. It's important. You add, needless to say, the statement has nothing to do with the transparency fairness or legitimacy of the process, it's an expression of a political position. Matthews responded to Warren saying, I am with you on that because it's got to be a center-left uh, coalition. And you point out how in the conversation, the procedural question was subsumed to an ideological one. Is that a good description of this whole debate over what happens at the convention? Is the discussion one of a procedural nature, but those who support the procedure are doing so with an ideological response, which is a distraction from and only tangential to the topic, a lot like trolling? Yeah, I think that this is clearly the case, and it was the case uh, in, in the Hunt Commission when superdelegates were instituted, that there's this idea about uh, presenting it as a purely procedural question when in reality... The procedural uh, uh, specifications are oriented towards a certain ideological result. Matthews said it. It's got to be kept close to the center. Uh, that's why these uh, rules are in place in order to prevent an ideological deviation. Uh, it's not because superdelegates aren't there because it's a more... Uh, you know, because it, it corresponds to some principle of uh, Athenian democracy or, you know, uh, whatever. It's because the party wants to make sure that they can keep it under wraps. They want to make sure that no one who's too far outside of their prescribed ideological horizon is able to achieve power within the party. Uh, you know, and they say this over and over again. And, and when it comes to this... Uh, debate where, where people say, well, these are the rules that are in place. You knew the rules before it started. You got to follow the rules. It's never been about that. You also point out that these people, the Democratic establishment, the superdelegates who fear threats from within the party, are usually called paranoid. But although this perspective is associated with conspiracy theorists or rabble-rousers, it is one shared by centrist ideologues and establishment figures like Matthews and the majority of the Democratic candidates for president. What is it that the Democratic Party establishment and people like Chris Matthews, what do they fear so much from within their house? Well, I think that they have this idea of technocratic administration of government and of the political process, uh, that it's the domain of experts and elites. Uh, and that belief is, is, I think, the determining factor between Sanders and Warren. The reason that for a lot of these people, Warren is acceptable, whereas Sanders is not, is that they see Warren as an administrator. She's got a plan whereas they see Sanders as belonging to the masses. He's, uh, you know, associated with organized labor, with uh, grassroots activism, and so on. Uh, and it, it just goes back to the way that these uh, processes were conducted 
up until I believe 1970 was the year that that these rules changed in uh, in a, a national sense. Uh, the belief that these decisions should be made by the party elites uh, in pinstriped suits in smoke-filled rooms, uh, you know, horse trading. Uh, that's the I you know Chris Matthews for example. That's the model of politics that he believes in. It's very clear, and it's almost kind of uh, poignant uh, how how devastated he is by the death of that process. But of course, that process is is one that needs to die because it's it's running uh, our 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 country into the ground. Is this then within the Democratic Party? Not only I mean I don't wouldn't want to go as far as a civil war, but it, but is it a class war? Yes, I think so, because, you know, you have that uh, kind of managerial class that is, uh, you know, tasked with making administrative decisions. Uh, the idea that those uh, uh, those people are the ultimate, uh, uh, you know, uh, authorities on what on what takes place uh, versus the idea that the people are able to attain a voice through representation. Uh, those are the two poles that are at play here. And you, you will see people argue in favor of the idea of technocratic administration. There's a, in, in the piece I talk about a, uh, an article in the Washington Post that kind of makes an explicit argument for that. And that argument is not like outrageous because it does actually correspond to the way the political process has worked for most of American history. It has mostly been uh, elite administrators uh, getting together in private, making decisions that will then pertain to the rest of the nation. Uh, so that has a precedent, but that's under threat. And, you know, uh, they are they're shaking their boots at it. Does the Democratic Party establishment have every right to be afraid, considering what happened to the Republican Party in 2016 and how its centrists lost all control following the rise of the Tea Party up until Trump. Is, is that what they're worried about, that the that uh, this loss of control, just like they have already seen in the Republican Party? Yeah, it's it's the, the parallel is tricky. Uh, you know, I, I mean, another parallel often comes up in terms of you know, uh, Goldwater and Reagan in terms of the kind of rightward shift of the Republican Party and the consolidation of a party that was both uh, free market economics and cultural conservatism that came into being in the 20th century. Uh, the the left has been, I think, a lot more, I say the left, but sort of the, 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 the left part of the center has been much more scattered. It's, you know, the Democratic Party has had a hard time achieving an identity for a long time. Uh, so, I mean, people are eager to make this comparison between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Uh, but I, I don't think you can kind of see the parties as mirror images of each other, because the Democratic Party has failed to establish a kind of uh, political uh, range the way the Republican Party has. And I think that's why it fares so badly in elections, unless there's like an insanely charismatic leader like Clinton or Obama. Democrats have not been doing well for a very long time. You write this year, superdelegates will not be able to vote in the first round, but the superdelegates remain in place. And even with a more constrained role, they might play a pivotal part in a convention that could include three or more candidates on the ballot. The implications are grim. It may seem reasonable to suggest a party nominee should have the support of more than half of its members. But in actual practice, the alternative process to determine that nominee is a form of voter disenfranchisement. How is it a form of voter disenfranchisement? Yeah. So let's talk again about that process. If in the first ballot, no candidate gets more than uh, it's 1,991 delegates. If no candidate reaches that cutoff, then they will go to a second ballot, at least the way the rules are set out right now. On that second ballot, those 771 superdelegates will be able to register their own votes. Now, it's entirely plausible that just those superdelegates would be able to tip the scales in a different direction than the outcome of the first ballot, depending on the numbers. But what can also happen is that the rest of the delegates can change their votes. 
if you remember, I, it was after the first, uh, after Iowa, that uh, a lot of the news networks uh, were showing the results with Bernie Sanders having whatever percentage of votes he got, you know, uh, and then moderate candidates having like 50% of the vote or whatever, as though Klobuchar, Biden and Buttigieg were all, you know, one person, you know, standing on top of each other in a trench coat. Uh, that idea may actually come into play if it goes to the second ballot, that they will, you know, jump ship from the losing candidates and consolidate around one moderate candidate that they feel is the best chance to obstruct the left uh, when it comes down to the nomination. That That's a, a genuine threat that we will play no part in. No matter what we did uh, when we cast our votes, we will not play a part in the decisions those delegates make at the convention if it goes to a second ballot. Why do we tolerate this system? Why do we tolerate even the caucus procedures that we see in Iowa and Nevada? Why do we put why in a country where we are supposed to love democracy so much, do we put up with all these anti-democratic procedures or does just just show that we really don't have much control over who is nominated for president because these two private clubs can do whatever they want to? Well, it's true. We're not given much control. And uh, as I was talking about earlier, the barriers to entry just to even try to understand this stuff is so complicated that you kind of want to throw up your hands and not even bother. And I can't blame the people who don't bother. I mean, I think it's 42 percent of the public of eligible voters didn't vote last time around when it was down to, you know, the 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 election that was supposed to be the most important in our lifetimes, the biggest threat that we had ever faced. A lot of people just couldn't find it in themselves to care enough to vote. And if, you know, I, I think a tendency of uh, of kind of uh, uh, liberal middle class uh, people is to is to look down on that. But I think a lot of people don't see the result as actually pertaining to their lives. And honestly, that's fair, given the way that their votes are diluted to the point that they don't really even matter. I want to, as my second to last question for you, I want to get back to Pete Buttigieg, where we started. You write, uh, after the Iowa caucuses and all the problems that they had, rumors began to spread that the smartphone app used for reporting data was developed by Shadow Inc., a subsidiary of Acronym. Things got weirder, whatever the implication of these facts. They are facts, multiple factors, <laughs> both personal and financial, tie Pete Buttigieg in his campaign to Shadow, which was also had ongoing dealings with the Democratic Party nationally. A week before the caucuses, the Wall Street Journal, Journal reported that critics expressed expressed concern about the reliability of the app amid warnings that cyber adversaries could seek to disrupt the 2020 elections. And you add that Buttigieg gleefully declared victory before any results had been announced at all, a brazen act of exhibitionism that seemed all the more suspect after a partial release of results showed him holding a narrow lead. It's not unreasonable to wonder in an event like this if the outcome was to any extent deliberate, perhaps arranged by some secret coterie of Buttigieg operatives. This is, after all, a man who worked for a company that was fixing bread prices. So why does Buttigieg creep you out so much? <laughs> you really freak out about I mean, he's just he's only the city, the mayor of uh, the city of South Bend with a net worth of one hundred thousand dollars. So why are you so concerned about Buttigieg? Well, I mean, he he creepy is, is the word. I mean, he consistently shows uh, a willingness to cater to power, to uh, climb the ranks personally, in a way that you know is is kind of scary. I think, and you know, he it's under this very uh, kind of wholesome, friendly veneer that uh, apparently is working on a lot of people uh, who see him as just you know a nice boy. But uh, I think that's a, a, a dangerous. Uh, kind of figure to inhabit is the friendly face of authoritarianism, really. I mean, you know, this this is a he's always making these arguments for how, you know, our our coalition has got to include billionaires, stuff like that. You know, that's that's not that's not the point. You know, if, if you want to talk about creating a more just society, 
then battle lines have to be drawn in certain a certain sense, in a political sense. Uh, whereas he puts himself kind of on the side of nullifying and ameliorating any kind of, uh, you know, uh, indignation at injustice. That's that's really, I think, a genuine threat. And I want to say about the about the Iowa results, I don't have any evidence of his campaign's interference in that process. I don't know. Who knows what we'll find out in the future about the whole weird set of circumstances around that. But the point of, of this article was that for you know, institutions of power to achieve the results they want, generally, they don't need elaborate conspiracies. It's just a series of small decisions and you know, some of them that take place in public, some of them that take place in secret, that are uh, able to generate the outcome that they had in mind all along. That's the point of power. And to pretend that that's not in place, that, you know, the DNC wouldn't prefer a Buttigieg nomination to a Sanders nomination, that's just being in denial. We have been speaking with Shuja Haider, who posted the articles at The Outline. The world's biggest threat to democracy is the Democratic Party. And just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they didn't rig the Iowa caucus. You can find both articles at theoutline.com. Shuja is also an editor at Viewpoint Magazine, which is at viewpointmag.com. And you can follow Shuja on Twitter at ShujaXHaider and find out more about Shuja at ShujaXHaider.com. One last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. It was going <laughs> to be, is it physically, humanly possible for Mike Bloomberg to be worse at tonight's debate than he was last week? But I think that's pretty impossible. However, he never fulfills my very low expectations. So I'm going to ask you a different question. You write, there are millions of Democratic voters in the U.S. There are only 771 superdelegates in the Democratic Party. In the end, they may be the ones who decide on the nominee, no matter how we vote. Shuja, what is the likelihood that democracy will die in Milwaukee? <laughs> Well, I, I don't like to predict the future, especially after 2016 when, you know, my prediction was uh, so wildly wrong, uh, and as was pretty much everybody else's, uh, with some exceptions. But uh, instead of predicting the future, I'll just say that the knowledge of how this is working and how it's supposed to work and what the establishment wants should uh, just make us all the more committed to prove them wrong and to uh, force them to accept the result that they didn't want. And it's very clear what that is. And uh, I just think anyone who is feeling uncertain about how to participate in this process, I think participate on the side of democracy. And uh, that means that you have to look at what they want and make sure they don't get it. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. I really enjoy your writing at The Outline, Shuja. Thank you. We're going to bug you in the future to have you back on the show. Again, Shuja Anytime is at The Outline as well as at Viewpoint Mag. And find out more about Shuja at ShujaXHider.com. Enjoy the rest of your week, sir. You too. Bye. Thanks. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money. So you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, how are you meddling in the U.S. elections? How are you meddling in the U.S. elections? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us at thisishellradio. Email it to us at alex at thisishell.com or chuck at thisishell.com. The, the uh, person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins a This Is Hell trucker cap, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Alex, do you have any answers to this week's question from hell? Oh yeah, we got a bunch. JC says, harassing people on Twitter. <laughs> a man after my own heart. Sebastian W. says, registering all stray neighborhood cats as Republicans and blowing the whistle on myself anonymously. <laughs> How are you meddling in the U.S. elections? Jeremy T. says, the same way Russia did. Facebook posts. Apparently now that qualifies as election meddling. Billionaires buying up all the ad space on TV halfway through the contest? No. <laughs> Posting to Facebook? Yes. Scott W. says, doing my best gas pump and store shelf blogging. If you're not familiar with that, it's, uh, it is when uh, we use a label maker and print out Trump is a criminal on a few dozen labels and stick them on gas pumps, store shelves, ATM terminals, anywhere that many eyes will see them. Oh, you could use advertising stickers for that, too. Chris F. says, I've outsourced this to Sideshow Bob. Mm. 
that's from that yellow cartoon. Uh, Dan K says, pushing all the buttons. I really like that one. <laughs> How are you meddling in the U.S. elections? Pete V says, voting for Sanders. Michael LP says, finding fault with whomever is in the lead. Kevin W says, by not participating whatsoever, the ultimate crime in any country where everyone assumes they have default ownership over your vote. How are you meddling in the U.S. elections? Benjamin C says, blaming everything on moose and squirrel. <laughs> Chris L says, going to wear my hot pants to the polls to distract all the proles. <laughs> Kevin O says, by voting straight LaRoucheite party ticket since 1986. <laughs> Scott S says, after being called a Russian bot for the last four years, I've decided to embrace the moniker and am abandoning my human organs piece by piece in exchange for refurbished Soviet computer parts. Nice. Fabio L says, meme the living crap out of centrists and finally aaron b says robbing banks disguised as lenin exchanging the dollars for rubles then donating the cash to bernie bros for russia llc super PAC. i liked how fabio turned meme into a verb i like that that's really good again leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell tweet it to us email it to us the person who has the answer that we like the most wins a this is hell trucker cap which you can find right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support let me get back to these last couple of emails we received recently karen writes to us at chuck at this is hell.com hey chuck back when rod blagojevich was on the precipice of disgraced removal i'm nearly sure i remember you saying that you had a source that had told you the fix was in and blagojevich was going down but you couldn't give details at least on the air I'm not going to give out details today either. This week's event and events and your recap on the past week's show got me wondering if enough time has passed and you can share any sort of details about that. All the best to you and Alex all, and all of those who help make This Is How It Run. Hope you are enjoying your weekends now that you have them off. Karen. Karen, I am enjoying my weekends. Thank you very much. And Karen, you can make your weekends more enjoyable by joining us during This Is Hell office hours, our drink and think that happens every Friday night beginning at 7pm 7, 7 at the bar downstairs from these here studios, Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon and if you or anyone drops by, I will be, anyone who drops by I should say I will be more than happy to tell you everything about how I knew the moment Rod Blagojevich was elected governor that the Democratic Party of Chicago and Illinois would have none of it. Look, I'm not saying they were wrong. I'm no fan of Rod. But it's important to know his party was no fan of him either, and the party has the power to take down anyone within their ranks. Outside their ranks, not so much. But when they turn their ire on one of their own, they can end a political career. Chris messaged us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, writing, Hey, I was listening to one of your episodes a week or so ago, and you mentioned you were looking for someone to help with some audio archiving sort of work and to look on your social media for more info. I've not been able to find any posts mentioning that. I do have some experience doing audio archiving restoration, ID3, meta tag, IXML format converting, editing, and mixing. I'm in Connecticut, which would be an issue unless you are able to handle remote. Anyways, if you still need help, I would love help any way I can. I've loved your podcast for years. Chris, we could definitely use your help, and I believe Alex has already replied to you, and those who do not live in the Chicago area, yes, we can use your assistance as well. But if you do live in the Chicago area and are interested in working on the show, again, join us on Friday nights at Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, and we'll show you our interview booth and our control room and tell you exactly what we are looking for in volunteers. Uh, let's see. Anything else that I need to find out here? Oh, yeah. So, Alex, what's happening on tomorrow's live one-hour show beginning at 10 a.m.? Uh, real excited about this one. Teray F. Reed will be on to talk about his book, From Verso, Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism. Now, is this Teray Reed, is he somebody who has been on the show before or somebody who we've just requested to be on the show in the past and we just couldn't get him? I don't know. We should have requested him if we haven't before. He's I, great. I, I'm pretty sure we did. And we just, Anyway. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing, and thanks to Shuja Hyder for being our guest. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.